Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game odds on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. Blue Wire. It's exciting to win money. Back out to Allen. History final. Tie game with five seconds remaining. Is there anything you don't gamble on? Uh, not really. Gambling gods, fickle bunch. Oh, yeah. So easily offended. Gambling's not your problem. You're just an idiot. And we welcome you into Full Slate, a Blue Wire gambling podcast. My name is Greg Frank. You can find me and my picks on gambling Twitter at Undercover Greg, joined by my partner in crime. When it comes to the college side of things, and he is Bill Christie at Larry's Locks 2 on gambling Twitter. You know him as Lucha Larry, as we have and will continue to pump out some college football pods as November is obviously the money month for the college football playoff resumes that are, are in full swing, of course, right now. But November also means the beginning of college basketball, and uh, we definitely hit the college hardwood hot and heavy here on Full Slate. Uh, Really takes center stage after the Super Bowl, but uh, we try and pump them out most of the season with our pick pods, which we will do plenty of this year. Uh, But we like to do a season preview for college hoops as well, and that's what you're tuning into right now. I know, Bill, you're always a big college basketball guy as am i uh so as we record late on a monday night early on a tuesday morning just uh, tell me a little bit about your emotions for another college basketball season set to begin well i mean the typical emotion of being excited right um looking forward to another great season this is going to be the first season since covid that we've had you know full arenas packed with student sections and it's going to have that same old atmosphere that we've been accustomed to for so so long so that's super exciting um you know and there's there's tons of storylines which we'll get into 
during the conference breakdowns. Uh, but some want, some of the discussions that we're going to have are going to be talks about some mainstay names that have been with programs for beyond decades that are are headed out, um, and also a ton of first year coaches um, <clears throat> that are going to be leading some big time programs uh, this season. And then, of course, which is going to be the topic of the conversation, I feel like with every single game, with every single program is how insane the transfer portal yeah. has been this year and how many, and not just names, we're talking, you know, uh, all American candidates, uh, those names have been bounced around from top program to top program. Um, it, it's just been absolutely insane during this off season. Uh, it's a shame that they don't get the coverage that the pros get, uh, you know, with between football and basketball where, you know, free agency is such a big thing. Um, you feel like this year it's kind of been like uh, its own free agency pool with with the transfer portal. So it's going to be interesting to see where these guys all end up at towards the end of the season. And it's also going to be interesting to see uh, how the chemistry is with with most of these teams early on with all these transfers coming in and going out. So that's definitely going to be a topic of conversation. Um, and it's definitely in a quote unquote handicap for myself um within the conference previews and my predictions for for things going forward but at the end of the day just excited i i love college basketball it's probably my favorite sport to to watch it's definitely one of the top sports for me to cap um but yeah at the end of the day just super super excited to get this season started yeah and that was obviously the big thing that i wanted to touch on with you as well was the impact that the transfer portal will have on this season and just Big picture, where do you think we're going in college basketball with all of these transfers? And, uh, I mean, Bill, I think you hinted at it. I can't remember if it was on the air or off the air when we did a – I think it was off the air. Earlier this year, we talked about uh, both of us being South Jersey guys, Philly fans, talked about this stuff with – Ben Simmons and everything that was going on with him. And I kind of said, well, what's going to happen next with the player empowerment stuff in the NBA? Because we had normally seen the the force your way off a team thing restricted to star players like Kawhi Leonard or Anthony Davis, things like that. And Simmons obviously wasn't in that kind of a discussion. So it concerned me a little bit about where on the professional side of things, the uh, player empowerment and things like that. Was, were headed in the NBA and now and your point to that was yeah you kind of thought it may only get worse because with a lot of it it gets started with kids when they're still teenagers based on the fact that they play there's AAU teams all over the country and there's always another team to go to and there's always more options for kids to make a switch if they're unhappy for whatever reason and that's where I get a little worried from a college basketball standpoint I'm not saying that it's a problem if a kid feels that he needs to move on from a program. But I'll put it to you like this. I would have rather seen more stringent policies on coaches leaving programs. Obviously, I think that's kind of why we're at this point for years. There have been cries about, oh, well, a coach can leave one job for a bigger job and not have to sit out and you know the buyouts are massive and they just get a big payday anyway and and they just move on so now 
I guess the transfer portal being such an active part of college basketball becomes kind of the uh, the player equivalent of that. And I, like I said, I would have liked to have seen it the other way where it gets harder for coaches to leave programs than it does get easier for players to leave. Because uh, I think there's something to signing your national letter of intent coming out of high school, even if you're not going to college to play a division one sport, picking where you go to college for a lot of people is your first decision as an adult. And so I've always felt like there need to be, uh, you know, when you make that decision, you need to take your time with it and understand everything that goes into it. And if you're not going to be an NBA prospect right out of college, then rather than transfer, I think uh, most of these kids would be better off trying to uh, develop and mature under the same coach's tutelage and not just look to run away. So those are my thoughts. I realize that, you know, there are not all of these transfers are in that discussion. You get grad transfers, you know, and as I mentioned, coaches leave. So I get why players decide to bolt as well. I just think at the end of the day, too much movement uh, can cause a problem. Yeah. And I think we're going to see kind of what that, uh, all that movement is going to 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 bring about the season with with so many so much of it happening. But let me just play devil's advocate real quick to to your point. And and I am, I am in agreement with the majority of your point, specifically to the fact that the coaches um, need more stringent rules on those folks to be able to just jump ship and go here and go there. Because when you're when you're either a a student athlete that's uh, finishing up your high school career heading into college and looking for a university to where you're going to play at the next level. Um, it's a difficult decision one, because it's, it's hard to find that fit in general uh, Two, most of the programs out there. Yeah. They might really want you if you're a top, top talent, but every team in the country has two, three, maybe top, top talented players. The rest of those sure. guys are mostly role players. And and to be quite honest, most of the coaches are out there. They're just salesmen. They're just selling the program to these guys. They're selling ideas of playing time and and what they're going to be able to do for them in terms of player development. And, and it's really difficult for these young kids, one, and for these families who a, a lot of them don't have a clue of what they're really getting into. Um, so, so when I'm looking at it from that side, it's difficult because I, I don't want – to say I want these kids to stay at the school where they sign their letter of intent no matter what um, because of all these scenarios where, you know, a, a coach leaves who recruited them, a new coach comes in and says, I would have never wanted you as a player. And now what, the kid's going to be stuck yeah. there for the next three years? But at the same time, there has to be a level of, okay, w- where are we? Because we can't, I believe, we can't let uh, all these players just continually jump from one team to another, from one college to another. Because when we do that, you're going to start to see the problem that I'm talking about from the get-go where these these kids have tough choices to make. Those those decisions are going to be even tougher because now you have no idea what you're getting into. Because you might be going to a program where you think, okay, there's a guy there who's a a rising senior and he plays my position. I should be able to take over that role the following year. Well, the next year comes and all of a sudden – transfer portal opens and somebody who's a sophomore or a junior that plays your position comes over and takes that spot. And now you're, you're sitting there in, in the same position you were prior to coming to the school. So 
it's it kind of you know it's kind of a double-edged sword and i don't know what they're going to do um i don't think that there's a right or wrong answer just yet but i think this year is definitely going to be a good benchmark. a good test yeah. and a good benchmark yeah for where we're going to be headed in the future yeah that's that's well said about the uh, you know the not knowing what you're getting into and how can you listen no one has a crystal ball so i don't want to come across as the get off my lawn you know stickler for the mm-hmm. rules are rules and 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 you they must be followed i do think there's something to knowing what you're getting into or at least doing your homework and and trying to forecast the situation as best you can but you're right i mean i think at the end of the day uh no one can predict the future and uh, as much as we try to here with a gambling <laughs> podcast you know, it, it's just one of those things where you're 18 years old and oftentimes we talked about the coaches jumping ship and leaving programs. But let's just also discuss while we're not in those kitchens and at those tables listening mm-hmm. to the recruiting pitch. It's also something where, quite honestly, like these guys aren't poker players like they're not able to necessarily always read through what the bullshit parts of the recruiting pitch are and what aren't. And how many times do we hear it where, you know, a coach is brought up as up. He's a great recruiter, but he can't coach for shit, you know? And so things like that, when, if you're an 18 year old kid said, great recruiter is probably going to, you know, entice you a little bit and then you're going to be like, oh, yeah, this guy can't coach. And so um, I, I understand that giving the players options and giving the student athletes, especially with the name image likeness stuff, too, if you if you're going to take that angle of it where, you know, mm-hmm. the best way for them to monetize their name image likeness is to be at a program that puts them in the best position to have success early on and not to just develop and become an impact player by your junior senior year, some stuff like that. I get all that, but I, I guess what I'm saying is I just, uh, as a college basketball purist in its, you know, simplest sense, uh, I, I've always just had a lot of, I've, I've always liked the three, four year player who isn't necessarily an NBA prospect right out of college, you know, and, and in some cases, Goes on, you know, Damian Lillard, Buddy Heald, guys that were three, four-year players that were, uh, you know, I, I think Lillard was a three- or four-year player at Weaver State. But, um, yeah. yeah, you know, those are the guys that I, I love seeing succeed both in college and in the pros because they're able to thrive at the collegiate level and not just jump right out and go to the NBA when they get the first chance to do so. Even, you know, some cases they aren't even NBA prospects right away. So although my long winded point is that I just think that since I and I think you're with me, if you're more of a college basketball fan, then you want to you should have more admiration for the guys that stick with the program and go through the trials and tribulations and you know, a, a, a Frank Mason or Caleb Swanigan, whoever, right. And, and, and still rise to prominence and national player of the year discussions with the program that got them there from day one. So I, I'm, I'm a little disappointed that it feels like there's going to be less of those guys, but I could be wrong. No, I agree. And I think we're going to get into it here when we get into these previews, but a big, a big talking point for me going forward is going to be that this new transfer portal piece 
is like the new one and done um, scenario. And let and let's be real, that has not been a recipe for success over recent years. You look at 2016 and 2018 when Villanova won, there weren't one and done players there. You look at last year's Baylor team, there weren't one and done players there. You had yeah, some. and I guess Bill, like you mentioned there. last year's Baylor team. I think that's the kind of team that because they were very transfer heavy. So I think that's the kind of team that is going to be able to have success moving forward in the sense that like, this is just going to be your way. Like you're going to have to find the Swanigans or the Frank Masons in the portal and untap a new level of their game by the time they're a redshirt senior or a true junior or whatever it might be like later in their career, you're going to have to be able to nitpick a few more things out of them that help them get to that next level. And, uh, you know, I, I think that on that side of it, it does add another element to the recruiting process for these coaches and uh, just trying to figure out who is already with a program that might be interested in leaving. It, it, there's just so many elements here that weren't on the table beforehand. And, um, you know, you mentioned a, a Baylor or whoever it might be like. I just think that this is the the path that we're headed towards where you just have to get used to seeing who are the like, I don't want to say it's as impactful as a five star unreal NBA prospect coming in for a year. We'll get to some of those guys as well. But maybe is that the point here for the NCAA? Ultimately, are they looking at let's just forget the programs for a second. Are they kind of looking at this and saying, well, we would rather if a kid is on the fence, like say you're a high recruit, four or five star recruit. And, you know, the way too early mock drafts have you as a first rounder in the NBA before you've even played a college game. Is the NCAA trying to protect against players like I'll, I'll even give you an example. And this guy did go in the first round in this past draft. But Jalen Johnson just decides I'm out and quits on Duke, essentially. Now it is Duke, so you would expect a program like Duke to more be the beneficiary of a big transfer like that and not lose a transfer, but remove the school for a second. Do you think that that's the angle here for the NCAA to try and prevent situations where a player comes into the campus as a highly touted recruit, it doesn't really work out, and rather than say, you know what, I was still a highly touted recruit, I'm going to go to the NBA draft, they say, I'm going to transfer and try and find a new situation. Could that be the angle here? I think it's, it's definitely a possibility because at the end of the day, right, like they want those they want those players in their system because those players are what generate their revenue. Right. And that's what, unfortunately, the NCAA seems to be all about. So, yeah, I, I could definitely see that angle being being the one that the NCAA is playing. So let's get to it then, and obviously we talked plenty about uh, – well, not plenty, but we touched on it a little bit there with Baylor uh, winning the national championship last year, defeating Gonzaga in the national championship game. Uh, and so we're going to run through each conference, give a couple of the top dogs, uh, a sleeper and uh, an underachiever uh, that we're looking at in each of these leagues. And so we'll start with the Big 12, um, and uh, I guess – Bill, certainly feel free to chime in with who you have at the top of the league. But uh, just first off, uh, let's start with the defending national champs. Baylor at number eight in the AP preseason poll. 
what are you seeing from this year's team in Waco? Uh, it's going to be interesting, right? They lose uh, pretty much everybody. Right. Uh, but you got to – you can't underestimate Coach Drew. He's been such a, a stability, a stable force really within that program, and, and people forget how low that program had gotten prior to his uh, arrival. I, I trust in him and getting these guys ready to go. I don't think they're going to be anywhere near – obviously last year's national championship team. Um, but they are definitely a team that, that will be able to make some noise within the conference. I don't have them um, uh, in either slot one or slot two um, for, for the big 12 here. Um, not sure if you had them slated in there for, you did not. That's correct. Yeah, I did not. Okay. Yeah. I, so I, I'm, I'll just take us off real quick with my, with my number one team. Um, which is going to be, and I hate to say it because I, I, I always root against Bill Self year in and year out, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to be putting Kansas in the number one slot uh, this year. I know there's going to be a lot of talk about who I have at number two uh, in Texas as being the, the front runners this year for the Big 12 championship, but I really like this Kansas team. I think that the, um, the transfer portal, again, is going to be a topic of conversation what uh what Bill Self's been able to do there is gonna be is gonna be huge for the roster. Um, but they're completely little with talent. They got uh the, the Martin kid. Uh, he's sure, yeah, the big one from Arizona State. Right, and they got the senior. I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna butcher his name. Ochaya Abaji. Abaji. Um, yeah. Yes. So you know he's he's the wing player. He's gonna be a steady piece. Um, they have a lot of talent that's gonna be there, and I just think that the as much as I'd like to put Texas in that one slot, I, I just don't feel comfortable doing that just yet um, because I just don't know what their chemistry is going to be like. They could be a team that, you know, they, they struggle maybe a little bit throughout the season and, and gelling, but come tourney time, they might be arguably the best team in the country. I could totally see that happening. Um, but in terms of just the, the conference outlook, uh, I feel more comfortable putting Kansas in my number one slot rather than Texas with not just the upheaval of, of uh, rosters, right? I mean, they have a, they have a new coach, um, but a new coach who's familiar with the territory and who is a phenomenal coach in, in Chris Beard. So I know they're going to be good come the end of the season. It's just the, the early conference outlook. I don't see them as being the top dogs uh, early on in there. How about you? Yeah, I do think I flip-flopped, you know, uh, with Texas at number one. I just think the depth with Texas really stands out. Mm -hmm. Seven transfers overall coming into the program and a top 50 recruiting class. And it's not entirely predicated upon the newcomers because you do have Andrew Jones and Courtney Mm Ramey coming back into the rotation for the Longhorns as well. I think when it comes to first-year coaches, this is one of the more natural fits with Chris Beard making the short stop from Lubbock over to Austin where he takes over a Longhorn program that he obviously uh, knows well. And, uh, again, I think the depth uh, really stood out with Texas. uh, And I do think it's going to be neck and neck, though. I mean, Remy Martin coming in uh, for Marcus Garrett there at Kansas was – uh, a big change to the Jayhawk lineup uh, in a you know and something they needed to really fill that void that Garrett left in the backcourt. So uh, back and forth for me, uh, Texas's depth 
ultimately uh, something that I felt would uh, come February, March, because that's the thing, right? Uh, some we're gonna there's certain programs where uh, you know we'll hint at it with some overachievers, underachievers, things like that. Certain programs where you look at and say, well, they might get off to a slow start and it might plague them, or they might get off to a slow start, but they'll be okay in this conference and they'll peak come February, March. Ultimately, we expect both of this Big 12 race to go down to the wire anyway. So I think Beard is a good enough tactician. Obviously, you saw what he did at Texas Tech getting to that national championship game a few years ago and uh, really doing a great job with the particularly the defensive wear you down style that he really patented at Tech. So I, I think uh, come February, March, he'll have the right uh, mix and matching of uh, Longhorns and uh, really have his rotation squared away. So I, I slightly lean to the Longhorns, but I do want to keep things moving. And I, I think one other program, we talked about the t- teams at the top. I'll get into my um, my under or overachiever now. And this is kind of going to be weird in one sense because they did just get banned from the, well, the appeal was upheld for Oklahoma State, which is a real bummer for Mike Boynton's team, but I still went with them here as mm. a little bit of a sleeper because this team last year was still a number four seed in the NCAA tournament. And yes, Kate Cunningham is gone, but college basketball has always been way more about the team. And there have been plenty of teams that have had NBA prospects on them and have not always fared that well. So I, I don't think that it was a situation last year in which Kate Cunningham just uh, glided, uh, you know, and Oklahoma State rolled off his coattails the whole way. I think there's more minutes, more opportunities for a lot of the role players that were on that team last year that were still integral. Bryce Thompson, Kansas transfer, Mosa Cisse. I probably got mm. that wrong. The uh, no, Memphis, Excuse me? No, you got it. Okay, the Memphis transfer comes into the fold as well. I like Mike Boynton as a younger coach uh, that I, seems to have uh, already put his uh, staple on the Oklahoma State program and, and has the Pokes kind of uh, playing a way that he wants them to play. I, I just think collectively there's still a lot to work with uh, in Stillwater there. So Oklahoma State, my sleeper, and then I don't know that you can call them an underachiever because they are picked closer to the middle of the conference, but I do think it's going to be a rough first year for Porter Moser at Oklahoma, staying in the Sooner State with uh, the Sooners of Oklahoma there in Norman. They lose four seniors, three of their leading scorers, and a new coach comes in. It just doesn't feel like a recipe for early success there uh, for Porter, uh, another new coach in this league. So uh, I think Oklahoma State probably a little fired up uh, and, and out with something to prove. Uh, and, and so they, they would be the team I would look at as a, a team with, you know, obviously the futures market will be limited with them, but uh, a team that you can look at and still uh, probably find some value on in, in conference games in particular. Uh, and I think the Sooners uh, probably uh, are in for a rough go year number one for Porter Moser there in Oklahoma. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you on, on both of those fronts. The only thing that I'll add is, um, the other sleeper that I was looking at <clears throat> within the conference here is uh, is Kansas State. They're bringing back four starters, and again, to me, 
a big piece of this season is going to be the teams that are able to gel early on in the season and be able to rattle off some wins that you don't think that they would get probably later on in the season. And I think Kansas State's one of those teams that are going to be able to, um, to, to, to gel the right way in the beginning. And I mean, let's be real, Bruce Weber's jobs most likely on the line this season. So sure, um, yeah. these guys, these four returning starters, obviously are guys that Bruce Weber recruited and brought into the program. Um, so we'll see how loyal they are to him this season and how much they can do in order to hopefully for his sake, keep his own job. So Kansas State's going to be the other sleeper that I'll add for the big 12 there. Yeah. And one last generic point there uh, before we move to the next league is just the fact that I think you should not, as much as we spent a lot of time there talking the transfer portal, I think that also, if you think that the transfer portal is going to be a huge, you know, factor in college basketball this season and moving forward, well, then you should also think that returning starters is an even bigger factor because right. that, that uh, you know, intrinsic value on camaraderie and, and having guys, you know, have chemistry from day one and things like that, like that becomes more important if you have teams nationwide, like everywhere that just have a lot more turnover with their rosters to begin with. So that's something that I don't think should be overlooked uh, regardless of, uh, of the team is just the value of returning starters this year, uh, probably more than it has been in years past. I want to go to the ACC next uh, where uh, we obviously have the, you know, we wanted to start with the big 12 and Baylor being the defending champ, but the story you're going to hear a ton about starting tomorrow night. Oh, what's that? Sorry, I'm just getting ready to to yawn myself to sleep oh. <laughs> from the story that we're gonna I, I, hear I every something single here. night. Every single time we're gonna hear the story. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, and it is of course the farewell season for Coach K and, and the Duke Blue Devils. I, I gotta say, I have not been one to take a side. In the Tobacco Road rivalry, I just hope for good games every time Duke and North Carolina get together. But I got to tip my cap to Roy Williams here and not necessarily. uh, I mean, Duke and Carolina are are, this season are going to be battling it out neck and neck in the league. But Roy decided, no, I don't need the farewell tour. In both cases, Duke and North Carolina, they're keeping it in the family. John Shire will succeed Coach K and Hubert Davis taking over. At North Carolina, and Roy just decided to keep the attention off himself and have his retirement at the appropriate time. And he also had a better season than Coach K last year. Not that he went out in stellar fashion anyway, losing in the first round of the NCAA tournament. But uh, some brownie points there for Carolina when it comes to the coach. Uh, you know, who we'll see if Beheim does it at Cuse, but I'd probably ridicule him too i i don't think <laughs> just because you're a you know a highly decorated coach i don't believe bobby knight had a farewell season at texas tech you know obviously that wasn't the program we all knew him for but point being mm-hmm. uh not always going to appreciate the fact that it's it clearly seems like a move on coach k's behalf to draw a little bit of attention to himself and here we have this being a season-long story which 
<laughs> you're already as evidenced there, already getting tired of. So anyway, um, Duke, the big story is the freshman Paolo Banchero. I hope I got that right. If not uh, that one, I won't have to worry about mispronouncing all season long because uh, he's a you know, 6'10", 6'11", big with seemingly the, the scouting report is that he seems to have decent guard skills for somebody at his size as well. So that's obviously uh, something that in today's day and age when bigs are asked to do a lot of the you know or some more of the things that make guards uh you know their strengths and, and bigs are asked to be a little more well-rounded well seems like this kid one of the big recruits uh kind of be the front runner for uh, freshman of the year and probably a national player of the year candidate as well uh could be the number one pick in the june draft he is someone that will always garner the attention of opponents for the blue devils aj griffin and trevor keels are the other five-star recruits for duke uh, so i mean i went chalky with duke and carolina at the top of the league my big question for duke though where's the outside shooting coming from and that's something that we'll, we'll have to monitor throughout the season because uh, especially in today's day and age when the three-point shot seems to rule at you know every level of basketball it seems like well where is Duke getting consistent outside shooting from? That'll be something that I'll have to keep an eye on throughout the year. And then you look at uh, their rivals there in baby blue, the North Carolina Tar Heels. We talked about returning players. Well, Armando Baycott, Caleb Love, Leaky Black, and R.J. Davis all returning from a team that I know Carolina's used to being a lot higher than an eight seed. But you're bringing that man. If, any, if you told me any NCAA tournament team in a power conference that was a single-digit seed is bringing back four – key guys, I would say, all right, yeah, you're going to have my attention. And so that's the case here with Carolina. They also have a few transfers, uh, obviously Dawson Garcia and Brady Manick entering the fold. Hubert Davis was on the staff. So again, that's another uh, first year coach that I don't worry as much about uh, when, you know, that back to my point about Porter Moser too, like he's stepping up big time in conference size, going from Loyola, Chicago to Oklahoma that's a little bit more of a geographic move as well so that feels like a harder step for him Chris Beard just staying in the same state staying in the same conference and in the case of Hubert Davis you're the judge jury and executioner now as the head coach but having said that he's been with the program and knows the way of the land with North Carolina so I think it'll be a pretty nice season for Hubert Davis in his first year as the head coach uh, and then a few others uh, just uh, we'll uh, run them off as far as my sleeper and underachiever in the league. Uh, I'll start with my sleeper, and that's going to be Louisville. Chris Mack with a six-game suspension for his role in the Dino Gaudian extortion, Dino Gaudio extortion stuff. Having said that, uh, it should be a really nice front court here for the Cardinals with Malik Williams taking on a bigger role and Samuel Williamson, Marshall grad transfer Jared West will provide some outside shooting. Uh, and, and, you know, as I said, that could be a problem for Duke throughout the season. I did think Virginia Tech might have been an interesting sleeper as well. Mike Young seems to be the right guy for commanding that ship. Looks like he's steering them in the right direction there in Blacksburg. But I like Louisville as a little bit of a sleeper. As I said, with some of these schools, you're trying to project out into February and March and not necessarily as worried about, you know, in this case, Chris Mack not being there in the month of November, basically, with that six-game suspension. Having said that, uh, I'm intrigued by the Cardinals. And then I will say I think Virginia probably underachieves a little bit in this league. Not a lot returning. There's a couple transfers, but 
do we just blindly trust Tony Bennett to figure it out? He might be that good. I mean, he's, I was happy to see him win a national championship a couple of years ago. And maybe this is what, you know, Virginia will routinely again prove that it is worthy of a seat at the table with every other blue blood in college basketball. It's just a tough sell for me right now, given the fact that we've always seen Virginia win ugly and beat you 45-40. When you're, you're bringing a whole bunch of new players into the fold here, which is kind of what they're doing, I think it's harder to immediately get that buy-in that you need on the defensive end of the floor, even if you are a guy like Tony Bennett, who seems to be very respected. So that's just a few tidbits for me on the ACC. How about you? Yeah, I'm pretty much aligned with you across the board. Uh, I have Virginia down as my underachiever. They just, I just feel like they lost way, way too much. They bring back Keith Clark, um, who's been a stable force for them, both offensively and defensively. But I just don't see them um, being able to to get to the level of what they've been over the past few years. I say that, you know, turn around, we'll see Virginia will be you know, the top team in the conference coming into the year. That's just, that's just how that works sometimes, I feel like, with that program. Um, and it's funny, we both have North Carolina and Duke at the top of the top of the conference again, when last year, if you recall, when we had this pod, we were talking about, hey, maybe this is the passing of the torch in the ACC, and you're not going to see North Carolina and Duke sitting atop of it as, as often as we used sure, to. And here, yeah. here we are a year later, and there they are, one and two. You know, and, they, uh, and again, not that that was a bad call last year. Duke no. beat the tournament in Carolina. No, absolutely. absolutely. And, and you know, they, they reload it, and they're back and ready to go for this season to make deep runs. I have North Carolina as my one, uh, and Duke as my two. Um, you know, we, make, uh, we, we have some fun with the whole Coach K storyline and all, but honestly – I think it's going to be a big distraction for a very uh, young team. You, you mentioned Paolo, who who normally the discussion would just be about him throughout this season, you know, and what he what he's bringing to the table yeah, and what sure. he's going to do next year in the draft. And now that's going to kind of take a back seat to this Coach K farewell tour. I, I, I suppose you could argue that's a good thing for a freshman to not have as much of the spotlight on him, though, right? Yeah, yeah, you could play it that way too as well. Yeah, but I just feel like the pressure of this is his last year. God forbid, God forbid something happens catastrophic with this team and they're not able to perform at the level that everybody's expecting them to, to perform. Well, and the other side of the coin there is with the young freshmen, it's like, well, all right, buddy, like you might have an NBA future, but, you know, this is the last year of, of a legendary coach. Are you going to be the one to screw it up? And like, there's already enough pressure for these kids that are highly touted recruits coming on campus, trying to live up to that billing with the five stars and the top 10 national mm -hmm. recruiting or whatever they ended up ranked at. So yeah, there's that angle too, where it's like, well, you're, you probably would have liked a little more experience with Duke in the final year for Coach K, just so you had a few more guys that are kind of used to his way of doing things, and, and they don't really have that. Exactly. So I think that that part of it, again, I'm not dropping Duke out of like the top couple of slots here in the conference. I'm only moving them to number two. Um, but I do think that, that that could play a part in the psyche of that young team. Um, and the only one I'll just add real quickly is is my my other sleeper that I have is is the Irish Notre Dame. Um, you know they returned three of their top scorers 
uh, from last season, which again to me is just such a big positive. Uh, and and Mike Bray's offense will be the front court duo. They got the kid Lazuski, and then they have the Yale transfer Paul Atkinson. Both of them can score the basket and really provide matchup problems because they're they're really versatile. You know, they can they can shoot from deep, they can create off the dribble, uh, and they can get to the rack pretty easily. So I think that the Notre Dame team is going to creep up on some of these uh, programs here within the ACC, and I could see them uh, making some noise. Uh, come towards the end of the conference schedule. So we're going to go from the ACC and you're going to take us where now, Greg? Yeah, let, let's let's go out west where, uh, you know, we talked about the defending champs, the Baylor Bears, and, you know, wanted to hit one of the, the Duke stuff early with Coach K. But uh, a big story is, you know, speaking of Blue Bloods, could UCLA really be back as far as a regular mainstay in the top of the college basketball conversation. So we're going to talk about a little more about the Pac-12. Uh, Bill, I'll let you share your teams first in terms of who you're looking for in the Conference of Champions. But uh, first, let's just like start with UCLA. Uh, do you look at this as UCLA and everyone else? They obviously got just about everybody back from a team that was – you know, very close. It was maybe the best national semifinal I've ever seen against Gonzaga last year. Mm-hmm. So um, take me through your forecasting of the Pac-12 and, uh, you know, what kind of year we're going to see from the Bruins. All right, let me let me preface this with last year when we did this podcast, we talked about UCLA. If you recall, I think yeah. both of us had UCLA. Hey, they're, they're going to be the top of the conference. Ended up being better late than never, but yeah. That's true. That is very true. If we look at this, the finals, but if we look at really what the course of the season, you know, UCLA did not live up to the building that both of us had put them at uh, in, in the preseason podcast. Um, and I want to go to the exact opposite, honestly, this year. And and maybe I'm wrong, and you know, maybe I'll have egg in my face again like I did last year, but I actually have UCLA as my underachiever within the Pac-12 this year. Um, yes, they made that phenomenal run in the tournament. That's the tournament, though. And I think it says something about um, Johnny Juzang as a player. I think it says something about Mick Cronin as a coach that, yes, they can definitely make deep runs when it comes, you know, tourney time. But over the course of the season, I don't know if it's that they just don't perform up to what their abilities really are. Um, whatever the reason may be, I just – I just don't think that they are as good as the final four UCLA team that you saw at the end of last season. I think that the true team that they are is somewhere in between that final four team that were they 11 seed, I guess, last year. Right. Um, I think they're somewhere in between there. And I think that the, the hype behind them coming into this season um, is going to be too much for them to live up to. Well, and that's a big word when you talk about hype. There was, as you mentioned, not the hype that they're getting now, but there was legitimate hype around UCLA last year with mm-hmm. a lot of these guys on the team. And it's not like these guys were all freshmen last year, like right. sophomores and juniors last year, now juniors and seniors this year. And I think that they didn't really cope with it all that well most of the year, as we discussed, barely getting into the NCAA tournament. And then all of a sudden, when you think of it from an intangible locker room standpoint well then they were able to just kind of relax and just 
yeah. all of a sudden come the tournament, well, nobody's really looking at UCLA to do anything too serious. They're an 11 seed. Well, then their true colors came out. Point being, when the expectations have been on the Bruins, as they clearly are here, what do we? What evidence do we have to think that UCLA is going to deliver the goods? Because even last year, as that NCAA tournament run wore on, I believe it was Alabama in the Sweet 16. Uh, I can't remember, and then Michigan in the regional finals. So they were underdogs in basically every game they played. I think they lucked out and got Abilene Christian in the round of 32. But having right. said that, um, they were the underdog most of the way there and just able to kind of free up and, and be that team that everybody thought they would be before the season started, except no one thought they'd be that team. All of a sudden it would show up in March. That's what happened. How replicable is that? And so how do they deal with the target on the back? Because it did not end that way last year. So I share a lot of the same sentiments on the Bruins. Interesting. Yeah. So they, I have them as my underachiever. I, I have, I think what might be a surprise to some, um, I have the Trojans as my number one team in the Pac-12. I love the kid Isaiah Mobley with him coming back. They have the wings and Drew Peterson and Isaiah White. Um, a backcourt, they have a former five-star guard, Boogie, Boogie Ellis, the transfer from Memphis. Um, it just seems like Coach Andy Einfeld's kind of like hit his stride here with with being able to get the guys that he wants in the program. And now he's obviously like everybody else is dipping into the transfer portal. Um, but I just absolutely love what Isaiah Mobley brings to the table. I think that they're going to be the uh, the top of the class in this conference. And then right behind them is going to be a uh, good old Oregon for me. I mean, I feel like that team, no matter what they, we were so down on them last year, right? We talked about the loss of Peyton Pritchard, um, you know, who they're going to have to, to fill that void. They really don't have anybody. And then all of a sudden, boom, they're right back to where they were in, in previous years. So I, I'm not going to doubt them this year. I'm going to, I'm going to have Oregon in there as my two. And then real quick, my sleeper uh, for this season is going to be Wazoo, Washington State. Um, Kyle Smith's done an, an unbelievable job identifying developing some underappreciated talent his first two years. Um, and I think that it's going to be really paying off this season. Again, they're another team that are bringing back guys. It's a, it's a stable program. Um, it's going to be a team, that, a program really that people aren't going to be looking at. Like you mentioned, UCLA walking around that target on their back all season. Washington State's obviously not going to be in that in that position. Um, so I think they can sneak up on some teams this year. So I agree on Washington State. They were my sleeper, too. You mentioned Kyle Smith entering his third year. I always kind of look, generally speaking, in college athletics, I kind of look at the third year as a, yeah. a, a, a trigger year almost, where, uh, you know, first two years you're getting your recruits in there and you're developing your own culture and, and instilling your core values on how you want to run the program. All of that stuff should be taken care of, and by year three, it should be go time. And uh, I think that's kind of where Washington State's at now, where they're kind of ready to uh, jump off the trampoline, if you will, and uh, really launch themselves into contention in a league that is pretty open, uh, being the Pac-12. Most conference wins last year since 2015. It was their first winning season since 2012. They beat UCLA at home last year. Four starters back. Michael Flowers was one of the top scorers that was available in the portal, uh, having left South Alabama for Washington State. Um, and you, you, University of California, San Diego transfer Tyrell Roberts flirted with 20 points per game two years ago. So Washington State definitely adding some scoring. I'm with you 
on Wazoo being a sleeper. I do have to disagree on Oregon, though. They were my underachiever. I I don't know. Like, I, I know John Rossian always does the Dana Altman, he plays Rubik's Cube analogy, and, and I get it. You know, like, he's always kind of able to mix and match the pieces and figure out the best version of the Ducks come February, March, and there's usually nothing to write home about. Oregon's not one of those teams that uh, I feel like wows everybody in November and December, but there they are. And sure enough, last year, uh, pulling that upset in the round of 32 on uh, Iowa, and they got the COVID walkover against VCU. And um, yeah, so it just feels like they're doing the same thing where like this is in other words, like I just feel like college basketball is going to catch up to Oregon and that Oregon has been a transfer heavy team for a few years now and a team that has uh, relied a lot on new faces coming in. And I, well, if everybody's doing that, then are you going to be as good? It's like one of those things where uh, the, you know, just generally speaking, you know, like Chip Kelly came in, came to the Eagles and was doing the up tempo offense. Uh, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Lee kind of caught up to that. Now we see like different variations of hurry up offenses employed. And so what I'm getting at is like, if the entire sport has kind of started to play your game, well, how do you even know if you're the best team at your game? Because other schools, other teams haven't been playing it until now. So that's kind of uh, what concerns me about Oregon like uh, yeah like okay like this guy's just gonna do it again like he and maybe he will but uh you continue to try and turn over the roster like this routinely year in and year out I, I I don't know that it ultimately manifests itself in in the same kind of success there so Oregon my underachiever uh my sleeper I agree with you uh being Washington State you know, then you look at the rest of the league and at the top of it, I'm with you on USC. Uh, I think Enfield is a guy that has certainly, uh, speaking of culture and kind of instilling how he wants to do things, certainly did that. Remember, USC was uh, towards the end of the year there. They were one of the hottest teams in the country and just happened yeah. to run into Gonzaga in that regional final. So I'm with you on SC. Um, and then I also think Arizona is kind of interesting. First year coach. Uh, but it's a league that's pretty wide open, as I've said. And um, I th I think they're at least going to be an NCAA tournament team with Tommy Lloyd taking over there. And uh, they're kind of figuring out what their next version of themselves is going to be with some key guys on the way out. Uh, but a couple of promising young players – I'm not even going to try a Zulio well, try a, a, a Julios <laughs> Tublius. I don't think that's right. And Benedict Matherin. So uh, again, there are a couple Canada under 19 uh, FIBA championship guys that they had, you know, Canada, obviously we've seen uh, our neighbors to the North producing quite a bit of basketball talent the last five, 10 years. So um, Arizona, I think uh, sneaks it, sneaks its way up. Uh, to Pac-12 relevance this year as well. Um, let's keep things moving and go to the Big Ten. We talked about UCLA beating Michigan to get to the Final Four. Well, it's no surprise seeing Jawan Howard's team towards the top of the Big Ten yet again. A lot coming back. Five-star recruit uh, Mosa Diabate joining Hunter Dickinson in the front court. Uh, so 
I, I look at Michigan and Purdue as the top teams, but I'm flipping the order there. I like Purdue to win the league. Uh, lots of returners, including Travion Williams, who will undoubtedly be in National Player of the Year discussions for the Boilermakers. Two top 100 recruits coming in as well with Trey Kaufman-Wren and Caleb First. And I think Purdue is probably the team that, like, one of the teams, at least at the top of the because you, you talked about it with Kansas State and how that's really going to help with Bruce Weber in the Big 12. I think Purdue is one of the teams that I really look at uh, on a nationwide landscape and says, well, that's a team that seems to always benefit from continuity. I think that really comes into play here, too. Uh, Purdue, one of those programs where I mentioned Caleb Swanigan earlier, Carson Edwards, whoever it may be, their key guys are normally juniors and seniors. And they, uh, you know, Matt Painter, really develops his talent properly and Purdue's never the flashiest of teams. And sometimes they're not even a team that a lot of people are talking about come March, but there they are on that four seed line or there they are on that five seed line. I think he's a better team than that. Uh, so I think Purdue wins a league Michigan, as I mentioned a lot coming back, five-star big uh, joining. So Hunter Dickinson will have uh, a running mate there in the front court, which uh, certainly could bode well for the maze and green, uh, or excuse me, the maze and blue. Oh. Yeah, right. Not quite. <laughs> uh, my underachiever, I, I'm going to go with the Buckeyes here, Ohio State. Um, I'm a little concerned about their identity. They were one of the worst defensive teams in the Big Ten last year. And now a couple of their top offensive threats from a year ago, Dwayne Washington and C.J. Walker are gone. So what kind of team is Ohio State? And Chris Holtman's another coach that we I like and think could figure that out. But the Big Ten last year, and, and obviously it was not a good NCAA tournament for the Big Ten, for as much praise as the Big Ten got in the regular season, no teams in the Final Four. And uh, I want to say Michigan was the only team in the Elite Eight. I could be wrong there. Um, but... Ohio State was one of the bigger underachievers, obviously, in the tournament from the Big Ten, losing to Oral Roberts in that 215 game. And I just don't know if they're any better than they were last year. So I, I think that the Buckeyes probably are an underachiever. Um, and then I'll go with the Terrapins as a sleeper here in College Park, Maryland. Uh, the offense uh, revolving around those transfers. Fats Russell coming over from the Philly native, coming over from the University of Rhode Island. And uh, Hudris Wahab. Uh, I wish these names weren't so hard, but (laughs) the first time you ever reading them. So uh, I guess uh, the concern I have, though, is that uh, Maryland was not a strong offensive team last year. And now there's no Aaron Wiggins. So they're going to need those transfers to really perform. Uh, but I do think Maryland could find itself and, and have success winning your typical Big Ten rock fight game as well. So those are some thoughts for me. I know I didn't really say much about Michigan State. We're going to see them in the Champions Classic. Um, but take it away and add, subtract, uh, you know, tell me how you see this uh, this conference playing out. Let me just start by telling you how wrong you are, Greg. There's so many things that were wrong with with what you were just talking about within the Big Ten no, I'm joking. Uh, I'm, I'm with you on Michigan. Uh, they're they're loaded. Hunter Hunter Dickinson coming back um, after he thought he was going to be gone from the NBA. Very very wise decision in my opinion for him to return. Um, <clears throat> and then they also have Eli Brooks coming back, and they got the kid uh, Devontae Jones. Uh, I believe he's from Coastal Carolina, um, but they got transferred in. So Juwan Howard's just been unbelievable. 
for this program. Michigan was my sleeper team last year. I never thought in a million years that they would have uh, achieved what they achieved last season. Um, Especially with got, Isaiah Livers going down there in the, at the end of the year. Yeah, exactly. You, you thought when he went down, he was just such a, a motivational force and leader for them that was going to really turn the tide with them and, and put them in a bad spot. But no, they, they proved doubters wrong. They played incredible. Uh, my overachiever last year was Ohio State. I'm not going to make that mistake again, even though you have them as your overachiever uh, or underachiever. Un- underachiever. Uh, I have them actually slated as, as the two spot here. Um, at least about EJ Liddell, Justice Suing, um, and Kyle Young. So those those three, I think, are going to be tough for any team within the conference. Um, I also have Maryland as my underachiever. Uh, I know you have them as your sleeper. Um, pretty much as a quick handicap, it's just basically what you said, only I don't believe in it, <laughs> right? Like you're saying, you, you think that you're hoping that these these transfers are going to be able to come in uh, and they're going to be able to replicate what Aaron Wiggins did or at least fill the void uh, a bit. Uh, and, and don't get me wrong, I love Fats Russell. I think it's one of the coolest names in yeah. all of college yeah. sports. Um, but I, I feel like he's been inconsistent. If you're inconsistent – um, when you're playing for Rhode Island, I don't know how consistent you can be when you're playing in, in the Big Ten. Sure, and I need yeah. to out. Uh, my sleeper, though, uh, oddly enough, is is going to be Illinois this year. They lose Iodesumo, who we were both talking about. We both cashed our tickets tonight on the Chicago Bulls, and he he played a big role in the fourth quarter in that game tonight. Um, but the fact that they're getting uh, Kofi Cogburn back, yeah, I know he's going to be sitting. I, I forget how many. How many games, which I'm not even going to really dive into much, but I just let me say that it's one of the most ridiculous things um, that the NCAA has done. And the NCAA has done many ridiculous things uh, over the course of the past few years. But this is definitely in the, in, in the top of it. Um, but I believe in Brett Underwood. Uh, I, I said last year um, going into the season that the kid uh, Andre Corbello was going to be was going to be a strong player. And then I said oh, yeah. during the season that I. Yeah, and I, I do believe that he's going to eventually be uh, a Big Ten Player of the Year. I don't know if it's going to be this year, um, but I do believe he's going to take another step forward. He 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 is a special, special player, um, and he's going to – I don't want to say make everybody forget about uh, Io, but he's he's going to be able to step in and fill that role uh, for, for Coach Underwood in a way that most people uh, throughout the country wouldn't be able to do. So Illinois is going to be my team. Uh, that's going to be the sleeper here in the Big Ten. Um, but overall, I think this team, this is a very, very loaded league as it typically, as you mentioned, we didn't talk about Michigan state at all. Yeah, right. Uh, we didn't talk about other programs, Mike Woodson coming in to, to yeah, try right. to New coach there, program. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's plenty of storylines within the big 10. It's going to be exciting, but, uh, but that's what I got for us so far in the preview. Yeah. I mean, we could probably do a whole podcast on the big sure. 10 because a lot of these schools are, uh, I don't want to say all of them are basketball first schools but uh, most of them are very uh, relevant in both revenue sports so um, certainly these big 10 programs always give you a lot of intrigue both on the gridiron and on the hardwood but let's keep things moving and go to uh, uh, an only basketball conference or a conference that is only known for its basketball oh, you must be talking about the sec it <laughs> <laughs> is the big east of course it's been a little different the, this last decade uh since it's uh realigned but kind of starting to get used to it now as uh, disappointing as that might be uh with all these catholic schools in there um and i'll, I'll start obviously villanova i i had them uh in my top two 
Um, and I, I will say, and you, Bill, you're the Nova guy, but I feel like even though there's veterans, it's there's some unproven veteran talent here where it's like Colin Gillespie's back and he should be the straw that stirs the drink. But I, I do question a little bit about replacing Jeremiah Robinson Earl because which role players are stepping up here? As much as Villanova under Jay Wright has been so great in the backcourt, the team that you know won it all with Ryan Archie Diacono and Josh Hart, you know, they still had Daniel Ochefu. They still had Chris Jenkins. So, you know, and then go to the other one where it was Bronson and Bridges. Well, they still had Omari Spellman. So I worry a little bit about Nova in the front court, but I still think it's certainly a talented enough team behind Connor Gillespie or Colin Gillespie to flirt with a Final Four appearance. Uh, and then the other team that I think is really interesting here, and I, I put in my top two, is St. John's. Uh, Posh Alexander ah. Posh Alexander, and Julian Champ-Penny, I think is how yep. he says that, yep. are returning. I think the Johnnies take a little bit of a page out of the team that they share Madison Square Garden with. Well, I guess they, they, uh, the, the, the Knicks are the primary tenant in the building, but point being uh, the Knicks the last few years under Tom Thibodeau have been that really roll up the sleeves, grind you down, stingy defensive team, uh, which I think works well in, in a blue collar city in a sports market like New York. I think that's kind of what we get here from St. John's. I think they really grind you down and will uh, make you work for every bucket on the defensive end of the floor. I mentioned those two players that they have returning that are uh, you know key for them, but they also not only did they work the transfer portal, but I think this also speaks to my what I'm getting at with their kind of um, defensive mindset and uh, how I think that they'll be good on that end of the floor and, and with the geographic kind of area factoring into just how they play. And I think it'll be uh, a, a, a style that Red Storm fans can be proud of. Well, look at what they did in the transfer portal. Mike Anderson, the head coach there, went out and not only did he bring in a lot of transfers, but area transfers from other schools not that far. Hofstra transferred, Tara Coburn, Montez Mathis transfers from Rutgers, Joel Soriano transfers from Fordham. So a lot of guys that know that area well, I, I think there's value in that when you're not having to completely change your lifestyle and you're going to a new school, but uh, you know, you're not picking up and moving too far. Uh, Steve Smith from Vermont, another transfer here for uh, St. John's and Aaron Wheeler uh, comes over from Purdue looking for a little bit of a bigger role. So I like the Johnnies uh, to be at the top of the league as well. Uh, my sleeper is going to be the Providence Friars. I think Ed Cooley, this is just a bet on the coach. I like Ed Cooley a lot. Before COVID, he had taken the Friars to five consecutive NCAA tournaments I, I feel like they're just one of these teams that like maybe gets slept on every year in the sense that, yeah. no, we're not saying Providence is a national title contender, but there they are in the tournament every year. And I definitely think in a league as deep as the Big East, uh, even even the new Big East, uh, the there's value in routinely being an NCAA tournament team like Providence was before the pandemic. So uh, they're starting four seniors and one junior. One of those seniors is a key Indiana transfer, Al Durham. So 
I like Providence to sneak up on some teams in the Big East. And then I, I worry a little bit about UConn uh, as my oh, – I think they're going to be my underachiever. I, this team, I, I, I think – here's the thing. It, it goes back to what a little bit of what we were talking about with UCLA where – People want to kind of coronate UConn as being back, and you know, they, they, they looked better last year. They, Dan Hurley got them into the NCAA tournament. But you look at the league from top to bottom. I talked about St. John's, Villanova, and Providence. Xavier is returning its top seven scorers this year. So I worry about a team like UConn that is hasn't experienced a ton of success in recent years. As I said, that was their first time back in the NCAA tournament in, in I don't know how many years, but – it was the first time for this group of Huskies that they went last year. And now there's a lot of expectations on the Huskies to be the top contender or top challenger to the Wildcats in the Big East. I'm not sure they live up to that billing. Good on defense for sure, which you always expect from a Dan Hurley team. What's the offensive identity from the Huskies post James Boaknight? So, uh, you know, still picked high in the league. I think uh, a little too much to live up to for Connecticut. Still an NCAA tournament team, uh, but not a team that I am going to be awful confident in this year. I'll just say that. Yeah, I'm with you. That, that's the same exact thing I have here. Uh, UConn is an underachiever. They were my <laughs> sleeper last year. But, yeah, I think that the, they're, they're in a position to fail kind of um, with being ranked, I think, two in the conference behind Nova. I have St. John's actually, same thing as my, as my two slot here for all the reasons that you mentioned. Um, my sleeper, though, I have – I have Butler. Um, they, they seem to be again. I think Butler and Providence are both teams that we see the same the same thing year in and year out. They just they don't seem to be a team that you, you think is going to be at the top of the conference. They kind of don't have any really big name superstars in their team, but they play well as a unit and and, and seem to get wins they shouldn't throughout the conference schedule. So I, I'm I'm just slating Butler in that spot for my and of course I have Villanova as my number one. Um, you know, they obviously do lose a lot with, with Robinson Earl leaving for the draft. But again, I, and I, I talked about this last year when, uh, when Gillespie went down and I said that the nation's going to use Justin Moore as a name, as a household name uh, from this. And he really stepped up in his absence. I think Justin Moore is going to end up being the, um, the biggest player of the year when it's all said and done. Uh, and then the spot where, Earl leaves. Uh, it's it, oddly enough, they're bringing in a kid um, who's a sophomore who literally is from my backyard. Uh, I'm living out in, in the Abington area now. Uh, Eric Dixon is from Willow Grove. He went to Abington High School, um, and he actually uh, was ahead of the, my neighbor across the street from me. He was now a senior at Abington High School, and he'll be a starter. But he sat behind Eric Dixon his first two years of high school, and Dixon's going to be that six-eight man in, inside the small center that. Uh, typically reigns supreme with the Villanova Wildcats. And I, I, I'm not going to doubt Jay. I, I, Gillespie just brings a ton of leadership back. You know, who knows what's going to be with that knee um, coming off the injury. You got to figure he's had a ton, a ton of time to rehab. He should be okay um, as long as he can stay healthy with Justin Moore. Uh, uh, the kid Caleb, uh, I'm blanking on his last name, uh, the transfer from last year. He'll be starting. Uh, they're going to be – they're going to be just as loaded as they were previously. Um, I'm not too worried about the the loss of Robinson Earl. Like I said, I think that Jermaine Samuels will step up. Um, he looked really good towards the uh, late stretch of the season last year. He's got that funky jump shot, but uh, it seems to go in for him. And he plays probably the hardest 
of anybody in the country on both ends of the floor. He just always seems to be in the mix of loose balls and, 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 you know, balls that are up for grabs. He's always after them. So I have no uh, regret in putting Nova at that number one slot, but it's funny that we agree both on St. John's and we both agree with UConn being our underachievers <laughs> here with the, uh, in the big East, but we got one more conference to go. You know, we know what's typically the, the conference you speak about when in terms of football season, but we also have to talk about them when it comes to basketball as well. Yeah, and let's get to it. It's the Southeastern Conference with uh, the Kentucky Wildcats, of course, being the team that headlines this conference on the hardwood, not quite the same way uh, on the gridiron. But uh, And I'm sure a lot of these fan bases, as you said, uh, weren't really uh, die hard, or excuse me, these fan bases – aren't really in basketball mode at the moment, but uh, we're going to finish it up and give the SEC its due. Um, And here's an interesting stat about the uh, SEC. Uh, Specifically Kentucky. Bill, off the top of your head, just take a guess. When's the last time Kentucky went to the Final Four? Uh, I don't know. Eight. Uh, Ten years ago? Yeah, yeah, all right, not quite that much. It was the Towns, uh, Devin Booker going for the perfect season team in 2014-2015. So, um, point being, uh, it's it's weird to say that we're going on a decade without Kentucky making that first weekend in April. Uh, I, I'm interested, though, into I, I think that the roster here will mesh well uh, without getting into too many specifics because I know we're looking to wrap this thing up here. Uh Cal was active in the transfer portal, and I think that's a sign of, uh, on his part, uh, uh, you know, a, a need to move forward with the times. And mm-hmm. certainly, we saw a lot of the other schools, particularly the ones that Ken Flex in recruiting, start to uh, catch up to him with a lot of the one and done style. And right. I think that kind of plays to part of the reason why Kentucky wasn't as successful. In terms of, you know, getting they were still getting to regional second weekends, but uh, the the there was no preseason hype and undefeated hype or whatever post that team in 2015. So I, I think that, um, you know, he brought in a transfer from Iowa, another kid transferred from West Virginia. I think there's the right mix here for Cal where now he's got, you know, you think about like you know, his teams that have been successful, like. The the team that had Julius Randle and James Young when and they went to the national championship as freshmen, well, they still had an Alex Poitras, who was kind of like the glue guy. Like I feel like there's a guy like that sometimes for Kentucky, and I think even a Cal team needs that. So I like the fact that he's dipping into the transfer portal a little more. I'm going to take Arkansas to win the league, though. Um, transfers Stanley Yamude, uh, Chris Likes, and Audis Tony are a couple of uh, three of the big names that they brought in. Of course, Likes really dominated at times for Miami last year. And this is an Arkansas that went to the Elite Eight. So um, I think Arkansas uh, has a chance to maybe take that next step and get to a Final Four. But I do think they'll win the SEC. Auburn's going to be my underachiever. They got this big freshman, Jabari Smith, coming in. (laughs) Finally, a newcomer with an easy name to pronounce. But um, no, I I think they're asking a little too much for him anyway in their front court because they did not rebound that well last year anyway. Right. So I, I, I just think that we're thrusting Auburn back into the conversation uh, in terms of a, a conference elite that I'm not sure the Tigers are ready for. 
And I'll take Texas A&M as my sleeper. Aggies, they were – this is one thing that I think is going to be important uh, if you have enough time to try and dissect it or if you're a fan of a program. Like, that's the thing. Like, I found this in my research. I didn't know this until I was researching. But if you're a fan of an SEC team, you probably know that Texas A&M was massively negatively impacted by COVID last year. They did not play a game in all of February. So they lost Emmanuel Miller to the transfer portal, but they added a ton of guys in the transfer portal. I think there's more continuity for them in College Station with availability and playing more games and figuring out their identity and their rotation all lend itself towards Texas A&M climbing the ranks a little bit in the SEC. So those are my four to keep an eye on. Kentucky and Arkansas at the top. Auburn slips down a little bit. A&M climbs its way up. Uh, yeah, I'm with you on uh, Kentucky, obviously, being at the top of the class. Uh, all the reasons you mentioned, they, they bring in some some guys with some veteran leadership uh, and some real good experience behind them uh, into the into the fray for Cal, who looks for that year in and year out because he's always got these one-and-done guys. But he should have a veteran group that, once they gel, uh, they're going to be very, very dangerous. I actually have number one. Um, uh, the the top team from the SEC last year, Alabama. I have them sure. yeah. uh, resuming that spot. Really player of the year. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm looking at his name right now as being uh, preseason uh, first team at least. So yeah, I think he'll be up there. Uh, and I can't believe I'm saying that after how much I bashed him before the season started last year about him transferring out of Villanova and just not being able to to be that player. But hey. That, that kind of goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, right? Like a player like Javon Quinterly, who was highly touted coming out of high school, who went to a, a top program like Villanova and wasn't able to crack that starting lineup and really gel with that team, leaves, transfers to Alabama, and all of a sudden, two years later, we're talking about him as possibly being the player of the year within the SEC conference. So it, it kind of plays back to that original storyline that we had. So I'm sticking with Alabama. I trust Nate Oates. Um, I think he's going to get the most of this team. Um, as far as my sleeper, uh, I have Mississippi State in this spot. Um, last season, uh, they had the combo guards, Irish and Molinar and DJ Stewart. Um, they looked, they, they took this step forward. I think it's going to continue. Um, and Ben Hallen's just been a staple amongst college basketball in general. Um, I trust him as far as what he can get out of his players. They bring in the kid from Michigan State, Rocket Watts, the Memphis wing, DJ Jeffries, and then the biggest one to me, they're bringing in Garrison Brooks from North Carolina. Um, so I think the transfer portal's been kind to them. I think they're going to be able to have uh, some spots within the season where they can make a little bit of noise. Um, and as far as underachievers, who was your underachiever again? Auburn. Oh, yeah, I had Auburn. Um, you mentioned the big guy coming in. It's, it's weird. Auburn has kind of been uh, known in the past for their guard-heavy play, and now it seems like they're trying to switch it over to to a, a more big-man style. Um, and I don't know how much that fits the culture. I don't know how much that really fits Bruce Pearl's personality. Um, so I just don't feel like that's going to be a great mix uh, this season. So I have Auburn down there as my underachiever as well. One last note for you, Bill, before we get out. I want to go back to the ACC. I had this jotted down, and I uh, did not 
blurted out when we talked about the ACC. We mentioned that Duke uh, missed a tournament last year and Carolina was an eight seed. Those are our top two teams in the league this year, we're thinking. And I think it's interesting because that league uh, has not really like last year was a step back and to the point where there was no number one seed in the ACC last year. And it didn't look like there was going to be one before COVID shut everything down. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there is no number one seed this year out of the ACC, it'll be the first time since 88, 89, 89, 90, in which it was back to back years for no number one seed from the ACC. So I, I just thought that was interesting that a league that, for you and I growing up was right there with the big East for as the best league in college basketball. Mm-hmm. And we talked about it, changing of the guard, maybe not. So if we're right about Carolina and Duke, but uh, just something to consider. I'm not sure the ACC is, uh, should be thought of in the same regard that it was five, 10 years ago. Very, that's an interesting stat. I would not have guessed. Uh, I, I don't know. I think I may have even guessed it would have been longer than that. I just feel like ACC teams have, that's what I'm saying. Always, yeah, always dominate. Wow, it's it's that's that's crazy. But that's still over 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Oh God. <laughs> there he is, Bill Christie at Larry's Locks Two, Lucha Larry on Gambling Twitter. Bill, thanks for hanging in there. Uh, and uh, I'm getting pretty tired myself. So let's go ahead and call it a night or an early morning at this point. <laughs> hey, before Happy we college go, college basketball season. Let's enjoy the Champions Classic. College basketball is back. Before we run, before we run, if you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. Uh, and if you've been following me on Twitter, I've joined Forges with Dub Club. That's where I'm posting my VIP plays now. Uh, I've been promised that we will have a, uh, a three-day free trial coming up for all my plays in the very near future. Rumor is it might be actually tomorrow afternoon. Uh, so stay tuned for that. I will make sure that I get every listener that DMs me onto that uh, free three-day trial. There he is, Bill Christie, as I said, at Larry's Locks 2 on Gambling Twitter. I'm Greg Frank at Undercover Greg on Gambling Twitter. Follow the podcast as well. Our producer, Jack of All Trades, Alex Uplinger, managing that account at full underscore slate underscore pod. Bill, thanks a lot, man. Let's enjoy the start of college basketball, and I'm sure we'll reconvene to hit the college gridiron by the end of the week. Absolutely. Talk to you then. All righty. Again, he's Bill Christie. I'm Greg Frank. This has been Full Slate. Everyone enjoy college basketball opening night. And of course, please play responsibly.